0: Welcome to Night Sky Tourist, a place to learn the night sky, have fun with its ancient stories, meet astronomers and dark sky advocates, and fall in love with the dark. I'm Vicki Dirksen, your host and author of the website and blog NightSkyTourist.com. If you've never visited the website, I invite you to stop by after the podcast. Check out some of the great blog articles, browse through the resource page, and sign up for the monthly newsletters. The newsletters have great content that is exclusive for subscribers. My guest tonight is Betty Maya Foote from the International Dark Sky Association. We discuss the upcoming International Dark Sky Week that kicks off on April 5th. Our favorite NASA Solar System Ambassador, Ted Blank, is back to answer your questions, and we'll finish off with a naked eye tour across the night sky. Are you ready? Let's get to it. If you look at a calendar of special days of observation for the month of April, you'll find that many are connected to nature. There are the famous ones like Earth Day and Arbor Day, but there are also ones like Aquatic Animal Day, Beaver Day, and Zoo Lover's Day. And then there is International Dark Sky Week. It is the first full week of the new moon in April each year when the skies are the darkest and stargazing is the best. This year, International Dark Sky Week runs from April 5th through 12th. And my guest tonight to talk about this observance is Betty Maya Foote. Betty Maya is the Director of Engagement for the International Dark Sky Association, which is the entity that certifies official dark sky places around the world. And it spearheads dark sky protection and advocacy on a global scale. A graduate of the University of Utah, Betty Maya wrote a thesis titled Light Pollution Hazards Within Ecosystems and Mitigation Strategies for the Future. She's also an amazing astrophotographer, capturing breathtaking images of the Milky Way and the night sky. I've had a little interaction with Betty Maya prior to our interview, as she's been working on the International Dark Sky Association's Advocate Program, of which I'm a member. So please join me tonight in welcoming Betty Maya Foote to the podcast. Betty Maya, thank you for joining us on Night Sky Tour's podcast. We're so happy to have you here.
1: Thanks for having me, Vicki. It's great to be here.
0: Let me ask you this first. Did you grow up under a dark night sky? I did,
1: yes. (laughs) I'm very lucky to have grown up under the very dark skies of Moab, Utah, and that's a big reason why I am in this field today. I think it was a huge part of my childhood spending my summer nights, sleeping outside on the trampoline and looking up at the night sky and I always wondered how people ever talked about counting the stars you know because there were just so many in the night sky it was unfathomable to actually think about counting them all so yes I was very blessed to grow up underneath a beautiful dark sky.
0: Yeah, because that area, Moab and Zion National Park and Bryce Canyon, like all that area is such a remarkable area for dark skies. You are lucky.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, very, very lucky. Yeah, we're the gateway community here to three international dark sky parks, which it was um, Arches and Canyonlands and Dead Horse Point State Park these dark skies against like the beautiful canyons and arches and the red rocks just also elevates the experience of the dark night sky as well.
0: So how did you end up on the path of dark sky preservation and and working for the International Dark Sky Association?
1: Growing up here in Moab, you know, we always, I always had the beautiful Milky Way and night sky above my head, just outside my back door, you know, I didn't even have to go anywhere really to experience it And then I went up to Salt Lake City to go to the University of Utah for my college education. And that was the first time I really lived anywhere with a significant amount of light pollution. But I didn't know what light pollution was, really. So I knew that, like, you couldn't see the stars, but I didn't really know why. You know, like, it wasn't really talked about. It wasn't really a thing. I didn't know there was, like, a term for it. It was just like, oh, in the city, like, you don't get the stars like you do. In small towns, or like in Moab, then I took an urban ecology class, and we watched the film *The City Dark*. I and love that, was my, that film. Oh, such a good movie! I love it so much. And if Ian Cheney is listening, I would love to connect with you. <laughs> but yeah, that was like my first introduction to light pollution, and it was like a switch was flipped for me. You know, pardon the pun, but I was like, oh my gosh, this is a thing. And at the time I was, I was studying environmental and sustainability studies and everything else that we were learning about was so depressing and so partisan as well and divisive. And growing up in rural Utah, you know, I've always been around, you know, kind of the other side of the environmental coin as well, the more of the conservative Uh, people and to me the dark sky issue really felt like one everyone could come to the table about and there wasn't such a left or right wing approach it was like everybody loves the night sky and there are just benefits it's a win-win situation to promote light pollution and Actually, it's the only type of pollution that you can solve at the speed of light, and there's no detrimental effects left in the environment after that light pollution is gone, and you've shielded that light or you've turned that light off. And it just felt like an environmental issue that actually was hopeful, and there was positivity around it, and it was a way to unite people around our, our you know, combined love for the night sky. Yeah, it was like okay, well, this is what I want to do, <laughs> and uh, I did a. Sustainable Campus Initiative Fund project to replace some of the lighting around the dorms. Uh, that were those acorn fixtures that shone, shone right into the dorm windows. My friends and I all had to install blackout curtains so that we could sleep at night because those lights were on all night shining into our windows. So was able to replace some of those lights. Um, and then through that wrote my bachelor's thesis on the environmental impacts of light pollution and really kind of dove into learning more about that. And then I was lucky enough to get a position with Utah State Parks on the kind of the start of their journey to certify many, many dark sky parks across the state. I personally worked on 12 of them, and it's really great to see a lot of them kind of coming to fruition and finally receiving their designation.
0: I keep seeing more and more pop up from Utah, and I think it's so amazing.
1: Yeah, there's the efforts there at state parks are definitely to be applauded. They have done so much and really supported dark skies across the state. So shout out to Utah State Parks and DNR. And then after that, I got a position with the Colorado Plateau Dark Sky Cooperative and was able to really focus on uh, conservation on more of a landscape scale throughout the Colorado Plateau and Four Corners region. Um, And then after that, I was very lucky to land a position with the International Dark Sky Association. Um, and got to really open up that work to a global scale. And it's been amazing to connect with the dark sky advocates around the whole world that are doing this and to really see how global of a movement this is.
0: And so speaking of a global movement, we have International Dark Sky Week coming up April 5th through 12th. And tell us what is International Dark Sky Week and how did it get started?
1: So yeah, International Dark Sky Week is basically our raising awareness week for light pollution and the many negative effects that it has, as well as all of the positive effects dark skies can bring to communities and humans around the world. More than humans, all the beings are really benefited from dark sky conservation. Um, And it is always held during the darkest skies of April, which is global astronomy month. Um, And this annual event was created in 2003 by a then high school student named Jennifer Barlow. Um, And since then it's really grown to become a worldwide event and one of the key components of Global Astronomy Month. So during the week, uh, dark sky defenders worldwide connect over a shared goal to protect the night.
0: (laughs) I love it, that's awesome. So I'm curious if you know, is Jennifer Barlow still involved in dark sky advocacy?
1: I don't know, actually. I have never really connected with her. I think that she is now like a mother and living her own life as someone not super connected with the dark sky movement, but her legacy lives on.
0: (laughs) Isn't it interesting though? Because sometimes, you know, a young person, it doesn't even have to be a young person where somebody gets interested for a time in something that gets, you know, they have an idea that sparks in their head and they kind of run with it and they leave a legacy accidentally. And I love it. Mm -hmm. Anybody can make an impact big or small. And I just think that's so cool.
1: Totally. And I really, really hope to see more young people joining the movement because they are just so passionate about, you know, protecting the night. And I think that yeah, young people are the future of this movement. And I think they do, they will be able to make a huge impact. And I really hope to see more students get involved.
0: What are some of the events that you've heard of that are taking place around the world uh, for this International Dark Sky Week?
1: There are so many already. I think we have about um, 66 entries already. Mm -hmm. Just our IDA advocates around the world who have submitted their events. Um, Really cool stuff happening all over. Um, In Pittsburgh, there's gonna be an online talk about astrophotography and light pollution. They're also gonna be talking about art and history of the night sky with the Frick Art Museum there in Pittsburgh. Um, In Malaysia, they're doing an astro art competition to really encourage Malaysians to express their feelings and thoughts about dark skies and help them discover the night, which is really cool. In Turkey, they're doing a webinar on urban lighting and light pollution. There will be a presentation in Cantonese about using art and music to help people connect to the night sky. Uh, There's also some in-person events happening. People are in Colorado are doing a program on just how to use a star chart and how to identify constellations in the night sky. Uh, But most of these events here are online. And so you can tune into what's going on around the world In Pakistan there is a really cool series of online lectures from different dark sky advocates around the world and yeah in Serbia they're going to be streaming Adam Dalton who was the dark sky places program manager kind of talking about the dark sky places program so it's really cool to just see the global The scale of this event, but also how interconnected it all is. And so I'm actually going to be participating in an online presentation for our Ireland chapter um, and talking about how people can get involved and what they can do to make a difference and protect the night in their area. So it's global, but you know, it's really cool to see how interconnected the dark sky movement is as well.
0: So tell us a little bit about the momentum right now in dark sky preservation.
1: I have seen personally just a huge increase in interest in dark sky conservation. I think, especially during the pandemic and during the social distancing, people are, you know, in their backyards and they're finally having the time and space to, you know, take a break, take a moment and look up. And I think that's really affecting people in a way that has been super positive for the dark sky movement. It's also a time, I think, where we're seeking meaning and we're seeking kind of a connection to something greater than ourselves and the night sky has always provided that for me and I think it's really providing that for humanity as well because when we look up at the night sky it's it's easy to feel um small you know and but to me it's also really easy to feel part of something greater and larger and infinite and So I think it's been really positive in that the night sky can help people to step out of their small worlds and maybe some of the, the problems that they're facing in their everyday lives and really remember to connect to that greater sense of being and interconnectedness that we are all humans, you know, just riding along on spaceship Earth. that's, what's really important about dark skies and, and the night sky in general is that it provides that sense of connection and connectedness for all of humanity. Mm. Um, and I think that's something we all could really use right now.
0: I interviewed um, Dudley Edmondson a few episodes back, and we were talking about the inequity of access to nature, especially for urban black kids. And that was something that we talked a bit about was how getting out under a night sky almost had a meditative quality. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, you know, we had, we had discussed the same thing where in, in one sense, you feel really small, but in another sense, you feel really connected. And it helps you to kind of reflect on life and just take that moment to look inward and outward at the mm-hmm. same time. And it's such a cool experience.
1: It's definitely like therapy for me.
0: <laughs> so what is one thing that someone would, could do this week? They decide that we want to do something. What's one thing that somebody could do this week to make a difference?
1: There's so many things people can do. And that's what I love about the issue of light pollution as well as all the actions that people can take are incredibly scalable. Mm -hmm. So it's always great to start in your own home and start with your own lighting. So just inspect the own lighting, your own lighting around your home. Uh, We have a home lighting assessment on our website that can help you do this, but just take a look. Are are your lights shining into your neighbor's window? Are they shining up into the night sky? Is there something you can do to shield them or put them on a motion sensor so that there limits the amount of time that those lights are on? And then talk to a friend or a family member about light pollution. Uh, There's still a lot of people out there who don't know what light pollution is, and I was one of those people, you know, six years ago. And I grew up in Moab under the darkest skies in the world. So, uh, even just talking and sharing your experiences and talking about what light pollution is to your friends and family can go a really long way. Um, And if you've already done that, you've already looked at lighting in your own home, you've talked to a friend and family member, talk to a decision maker, let them know that you care about light pollution, you want to see your city take actions to reduce light pollution, Um, and that can be as simple as you know, enacting a non-binding resolution that just says this city, you know, we recognize that dark skies are of value and not, you know, no ordinances have to be passed but that can be a first really easy step in helping your decision makers become aware and educated about dark skies. Um, But then you can eventually take that next step of working with your local decision makers to have a lighting ordinance in your community. And that's really the best way to ensure that your community walks the talk of protecting the night having lighting that is human and neighbor friendly um, and can really help save them energy as well. When when Tucson redid its lighting, it realized $2.1 million in annual energy savings every year. So that can go really far to- That's more um,
0: than pocket change. <laughs>
1: yeah, giving your city some extra funding to utilize on other projects that can really enhance the community as well yeah and then also maybe if you can travel and it's safe go visit a dark sky place we have a map on our website of all of the dark sky places that are certified and you can go check out and see feel what it's like to be in a place with dark sky friendly lighting and see that you know it's not all about being completely dark but it's about using lighting responsibly um, and in a way that is healthy for all the inhabitants around
0: I found here in Phoenix, where I live, I went to the Arizona Science Center last year to the planetarium. And I noticed as I was walking up to the building that the the lighting for the sidewalk area was only about waist high, and I'm short, so (laughs) (laughs) it was only about waist high, fully shielded, and just pointed right down at the sidewalk where you you had to walk. And I thought, you know, here we are in downtown major metro city. And here's an area that gets it, you know, maybe the whole Metro Phoenix area doesn't get it, but there was somebody there that understood that's all it took to be safe, to be able to get around. And it was all below eye level. None of it was shining upward.
1: Yeah, well, and I think Phoenix has actually done a really good job. Like the fact that you, the street lighting there in Phoenix is, it's fully shielded. It's 2,700 Kelvin, which is it's huge for, for a major metropolitan area. I think Phoenix is definitely taking a lot of the right steps and is heading in the right direction.
0: How can people learn more about the events of international dark sky week?
1: Well, check out the website, IDSW.darksky.org. And there will be a map there of all of the events from around the world. So you can see what's going on and check them all out. And, um, click around and sign up and participate in the largest global dark sky event
0: this month. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing with us. And we'll have to catch up again in the future with International Dark Sky Association. I know there are many topics that we could talk about.
1: Yeah, I would love to chat. It's really nice to chat with you, Vicki. And thanks for sharing and supporting and promoting Dark Sky Week. Fountain Hills is awesome. We look up to you guys and yeah, hope to stay connected.
0: Joining us again to answer questions from our listeners is Ted Blank. Ted is a NASA Solar System ambassador, and we got to know him pretty good in episode one. So make sure to check it out. Our first question tonight was sent to us from Victoria. She asks, how many asteroids are in the asteroid belt and how did they get there?
2: Good question, Victoria. There are about 2 million asteroids in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. It is thought that they are remnants of a planet that either once existed and was destroyed by Jupiter's gravity or Material that Jupiter somehow kept from forming into a planet due to the great gravitational pull of the planet Jupiter. They are leftover material from the formation of the solar system four and a half billion years ago.
0: Victoria, one of the cool things about the science of astronomy is that it's still one of those fields where citizen science is really valuable. So speaking of asteroids, the late amateur astronomer Charles Jules had a backyard observatory in the town where I live, here in Fountain Hills, Arizona. From that backyard observatory, he discovered 475 previously unknown asteroids. Our next question comes from my mom. Why does the full moon sometimes look enormous and yellow when it rises?
2: Thanks for that question, Annette. Well, the full moon sometimes looks yellow when it rises because when it's near the horizon, we're looking through a lot more of Earth's atmosphere than we are when the moon is up high in the sky. The Earth's atmosphere scatters away blue light more readily than it does the yellow or red light waves. And so that leaves behind a a yellow or red looking moon. It also is responsible for why the sun looks red when it rises or when it sets. The full moon looks enormous near the horizon because of an illusion that people have been trying to explain for thousands of years. But it is an illusion. You can prove that by holding up a pebble until it just covers the moon when it's near the horizon, and then a few hours later, hold the same pebble up when the moon is high in the sky. You'll see that the moon is exactly the same size at both places in the sky.
0: Mom, the March full moon was just a week ago, and from my home here in Fountain Hills, It stayed enormous and yellow for a really long time, and it was breathtaking. I could hardly take my eyes off of it. And I just learned today that part of the strategy for getting the shipping container unstuck from the Suez Canal was using the extra tidal power provided by this month's supermoon. That just means that the moon was a little closer to Earth than usual. Thankfully, it helped us out. Thank you, Victoria and Mom, for your questions. If you have a question for our podcast, please record a voice memo and email it to us at nightskytourist at gmail.com. You can also visit nightskytourist.com podcast for more details and tips on how to send it. It's time for our tour across the night sky. Where I live, the citrus blossoms give off a really strong scent, making the entire stargazing experience almost intoxicating. The rest of my family lives in the Spokane, Washington area, and it won't be long before their stargazing experiences will include the smell of lilacs. Spring is such a beautiful time for stargazing, with the sweet scents of nature luring you into its embrace. Pause the podcast, round up everyone in your house, maybe even a neighbor or two, and I'll meet you outside, under the stars. Leo is starting to take up its position in the center stage of the night sky this month, and our winter constellations are beginning to sink towards the western horizon. Let's start by facing south. Now turn your gaze toward the west, where you will now see Taurus sinking toward the western horizon. The waxing crescent moon will be between the bull's horns on April 16th. You can also spot Mars right between the tips of the horns of Taurus and just a bit to the south of Auriga, the large hexagon-shaped constellation. Just south of Mars and a bit southeast of Taurus is our favorite constellation, Orion. Have you had a chance to check out the nebula in Orion's dagger yet? We talked a lot about this constellation and some of its ancient star stories in episode three. The super bright star Sirius is a bit south and east of Orion, still shining brightly in the night sky, and it's part of the constellation Canis Major, or the big dog. And we talked about this star and how it gave us the phrase the dog days of summer in episode five. Now go back to Mars between the tips of Taurus's horns And then head east to find Gemini, the twins. You can find them by locating the twin stars Castor and Pollux. The first quarter moon will be located near the head of Pollux on April 19th. Now keep heading east to find Leo, the giant lion lounging in the night sky. But before we visit Leo, see if you're able to spot the faint constellation of Cancer It's located halfway between Gemini and Leo. It's made up of just five dim stars and it's pretty tough to see in light-polluted locations. But if you have decently dark skies and you take a good amount of time to allow your eyes to adjust to the dark, you'll be able to find it. To me, it looks like a stick person that's missing its arms and has a dot for a head. If you're having trouble finding it, see if you can find the area using a star app. Now let's take a look at Leo. I love this constellation, first because it's so easy to find, and second because he really does conjure up an image of a lion chilling out in the night sky. His head looks like a giant sickle, or perhaps a backwards question mark. His brightest star is at the end of the backwards question mark, and it's called Regulus. However, Regulus is not a single star as it may appear. It's actually a quadruple star system. This means that four stars orbit each other bound by a gravitational attraction. They are 79 light years away from our Sun. That means that if you started at the Sun and traveled at the speed of light, it would take you 79 years to reach Regulus. Do you know how fast light travels? It travels at more than 670 million miles per hour. And in one year, it can travel six trillion miles. Now multiply that by 79, and that's how far away Regulus is from our sun. Regulus is Latin for prince or little king. Its name in Arabic means the heart of the lion. And ancient Babylonians called it the king or sometimes the star of the lion's breast. In India, it was called the mighty and in Persia, it was one of the four stars of the Persian monarchy. Leo was one of the earliest recognized constellations as long back as 6,000 years ago. Archaeological evidence points back to the Mesopotamian cultures who recognized it, which today is the modern Middle East. Some mythologists think Leo was represented by Humbaba in the ancient Epic of Gilgamesh story, and that dates back about 4,000 years ago. In the epic of Gilgamesh, Humbaba was a giant monster who was raised by Utu, the sun god. He was the guardian of the cedar forest where the gods lived. He was assigned to be a terror to human beings. The story of Gilgamesh says, When he looks at someone, it is the look of death. It also says, Humbaba's roar is a flood, his mouth is death, and his breath is fire. He can hear a hundred leagues away any rustling in his forest. In another translation of the Epic of Gilgamesh, it is said that he, quote, had the feet of a lion and a body covered with thorny scales. His feet had the claws of a vulture, and on his head were the horns of a wild bull. His tail and phallus each ended in a snake's head. End of quote. But another tablet in a museum in Iraq describes him in a more positive light. It says, Where Humbaba came and went, there was a track. The paths were in good order, and the way was well trodden. Through all the forest, a bird began to sing. A wood pigeon was moaning, a turtle dove calling in answer. Monkey mothers sing aloud, and a youngster monkey shrieks. Like a band of musicians and drummers, daily they bash out a rhythm in the presence of Humbaba. In this version, Humbaba is the beloved of the gods and a king in the forest palace. The Epic of Gilgamesh tells us that Gilgamesh and his friend Enkidu killed Humbaba. They take the slain lion to the god Enlil, who had given Humbaba reign of the forest in the first place. So Enlil distributes Humbaba, which is now the constellation in the sky. Is the constellation Leo the Humbaba of the Epic Gilgamesh? We don't know for sure, but it is one idea. Let's finish our tour by heading east from Leo, where you will find the long, sprawling constellation Virgo, the Maiden. Some of her is still low in the eastern sky, so use your favorite star app to find all the stars that make her. We will learn more about this constellation in the future. In our next episode, we are going to take our first trip across the ocean to talk about dark sky preservation in the beautiful country of Switzerland. Until then, keep looking up. This week's recommendation will give you the opportunity to do something meaningful during International Dark Sky Week. It is the dark-sky-friendly home lighting program that is sponsored by the International Dark Sky Association. Betty Maya mentioned this in our interview, and it really is simple. You can download the free Dark Sky Lighting Inventory Worksheet, which will help you assess the exterior lighting of your home. Using the IDA's guidelines, you can easily identify lights that need a little bit of attention. Once you remedy those lighting situations, you can certify your home as a dark sky friendly home. You can print the certificate and proudly display it. And in my experience, this is a great way to open dialogue with guests who come to your house about what you're doing to protect the night skies and why you think it's so important. You can find a link for this program in our show notes at nightskytourist.com slash 11. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Night Sky Tourist podcast. If you enjoy the Night Sky Tourist podcast, please show your support by subscribing to it in your favorite podcatcher and leave a written review. It may seem like a small gesture to leave a written review, but it makes an enormous impact on our efforts to help more people find us. Be sure to visit nightskytourist.com for great articles and resources. And while you're there, sign up for the monthly newsletter for exclusive content. Click on the podcast tab to find instructions for submitting your question for a future episode. Thank you to Betty Maya Foote for sharing with us about International Dark Sky Week. You can find links for the online events and other important resources at nightskytourist.com slash 11. We'll see you here again in two weeks. In the meantime, keep looking up.